Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. What's the crisis of the week, Santosh? Is it, <laughs> is it coke bores, blood monkeys, murder hornets, you know super the... volcano? What are we up to? Murder hornets came and went actually without much fanfare. So we were worried about murder hornets kind of, and then we found out uh, it's not really a thing. So at least there was one false alarm kind of in the middle there. No, no, no. I, I was fairly sure uh, that the next fun one coming around because we're headed towards monsoon season or, or hurricane season over here. So <laughs> I thought, Ooh, I thought maybe that would be the next fun one. We get monsoon mongoose, mongoose, mongooses. I'm going. I'm going with mongoose. I think that's the plural. Like the Sharknado, we could we could actually have this real life Sharknado. Oh. No, don't be happy about that. I think it's time we delve into one of the most closely associated disciplines with medicine. Do you want to take a guess as to what that is? Oh, uh, I mean, I I read the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I know you were trying to do a thing. I'm so sorry. I just, my brain froze up and I just, uh, yeah. Santosh, who could ever have guessed this? Only somebody who had read the extensively typed out show notes I send every week. It's a real mystery. It was- so let's. Let's bury the lead, Scooby Gang. And this week, we're going to be talking about fashion (laughs) in medicine. Because now that we can all start going outside again, I thought it might be nice to delve into a little bit about how medical issues in the past have influenced fashion trends today. 
I, I think this would be so cool. You have a lot of cool articles that you're going to bring up here. I think I learned quite a bit about the history of our stuff that we wear. I thought I knew quite a bit about it because a lot of it came from things like sterility and hand washing, which we've covered before. But there's quite a bit of information that you threw in here that I had no idea about. We're going to work our way from the inside out and the top to the bottom, and the head, shoulders, knees, and toes. And I'm going to tell you right now, anybody who's spent even 10 minutes of me knows that while I love history, I am not the most fashion-conscious person, but I'm getting a lot better. Let's get into it. I'm going to take you all the way back to the Middle Ages first and ask with a piece of clothing that entered into the collective consciousness around the late 1300s and early 1400s, the medieval jockstrap, that sex (laughs) organ cover of the Middle Ages, the knights and the round table that eventually became known as a codpiece. I... (laughs) I don't know that I know much about it just as a evolution i i I know we talk about it a lot and i kind of understand that it's supposed to be like a piece of support or something like that but i aside from that i really don't know where it came from well what what would it be supporting let's let's start by getting into a little bit of etymology we don't we haven't delved into that in quite some time. And there's so many wonderful names for a cod piece that I just wanted an excuse to run through them. Sure. So cod in Middle English, you know, the Chaucer Canterbury English that nobody speaks anymore, yeah. uh, did not mean fish like the cod that we think of today. Cod okay. meant scrotum. Uh, and oh. so wait, a wait. cod piece. Did the name of the fish come from the word for scrotum or you know it's worth investigating but sure i'm gonna leave that mystery for those of you at home (laughs) okay because there's too much to go through and not enough time so it was introduced originally by tailors to both preserve modesty and protect men's genitals now one of my i'll get into the protection part in a second but Here's the first other name that was given for this. In France, the cod piece was known as what's the dumbest pun based stereotypical French name you could think of? Uh Jacques. Not not a human name. If you were to pick something to call your genital covering and choose from the wide range of available French words. Uh, the, the the genital covering, um, I mean, is this, you know, like Pierre? I can't wait anymore. It yeah. was called a braguette. A brag. <laughs> a little brag. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> okay. All right. So the braguette. In northern countries with colder climates, uh, men wore a garment over the penis to protect it from frostbite during the winter months. Okay. Um, So having something was padded 
not to protect you from any blows to the genitals, but literally, you know, when you had very loose fitting pants and clothing without a ton of insulation, and you're spending a lot of time, you know, outdoors, farming, adventuring, crusading, Sure. Frostbite of the genitals is actually a legitimate concern. And we've talked about frostbite before, and you don't want it anywhere. Uh, usually you'll get something that starts with frost nips, where your fingers kind of get that pins and needles feeling. Uh-huh. If you're out in cold climbs, and we've done whole episodes on hypothermia in the past, for too long, then you start to lose sensation and you can get a little bit of necrosis where okay. parts die off. Well, the last yes. thing you want literally rotting off your body at least if you're a man, is <laughs> is the family jewels. Sure. So, yeah, yeah. so this willy warmer, this testicle mitten, uh, <laughs> was invented to Love begin sure. yeah, to begin <laughs> protecting from climate in the northern. However, that's not the only function it served. Over the by adding insulation, both for warmth and later for support. By 15 and 1600s, cod pieces grew in size, ultimately taking on a grotesque shape. And can you guess where all this padding, what the real rationale behind this padding was? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't to brag about, it wasn't for braguette purposes. Really? It did serve a little bit of that function. It was actually for concealment. Do you know what they were concealing? Maybe even like, Concealing a weapon in there? Was a medical condition. Oh, oh, syphilis? Yes, heavily padded cod pieces did serve to display manliness, but they were useful for concealing the medicated bandages worn by men who had syphilis. And there was a major epidemic of syphilis that started around the late 1490s into the 1500s and spread rapidly. Now, sure. Santosh, as an infectious uh-huh. disease doc, I'm sure you can educate us, but syphilis can cause foul and large volumes of mixed pus and blood <laughs> discharged from the genitals. <laughs> yeah, thanks for that, I suppose. Yes, y- you have these shankers, uh, C-H-A-N-C-R-E, and these are shallow ulcers that are painless. That's one of the hallmarks for syphilis. You, you don't, you, they look horrific from the outside, but then if you would touch it, especially if it's in a, a tender spot, like at the head of the penis or something, and they say, does this hurt? They'll say, oh no, it, it doesn't hurt at all. That is a hallmark of syphilis. If it erodes and the little trypanema, the little spirochetes that cause syphilis, keep eating away at the flesh, then you start to get yeah oozing and pus and stuff. Really gross. Mess that could arise from this would require very bulky woolen wads and woven cloth bandages to be applied. And this would distort the genital area and make things simply look uneven or lumpy. And if the last thing you want is people thinking you have infected genitals, the next to last thing you want is people thinking you have misshapen or lumpy. (laughs) Odd pieces began to serve as, yes, it would draw your attention, David Bowie labyrinth style. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Because it became a feature like pockets 
or mm-hmm. drawstrings, people were just like, oh, it's just a codpiece. So if everybody, all men's clothing of the nobility had them, you couldn't know who actually had syphilis. Uh, now, huh. even more there's a There's a rabbit syphilis. Sorry, I went down a bunny hole. <laughs> Stay away, that rabbit's got syphilis. <laughs> Can you imagine? A rabbit with a tiny codpiece. <laughs> It'd be even tougher because rabbits are strange. The testicles are in front, I think, of their penis. Those of you who have had a chance to look at medieval art and literature may have noticed that codpieces very often tended to have a little bit of a reddish color or hue to them. Yeah, um, I, I always thought that was just because they were made of like tanned leather or something like that. Is that it? No. In fact, one of the most common ingredients used in the ointment applied to the genitals to treat syphilis at the time was cinnabar, which is a vivid scarlet and would have stained the bandages. So the traditional reason for the codpiece, as well as its uh, coloring and all this art, ties 100% back to syphilis or... 98% 98% to syphilis and 100% <laughs> So, and I'm I'm presuming then because the cod piece continued its life well beyond the 1300s and that kind of a thing until, you know, the pants and were replaced by something else. But we we still didn't have a cure for syphilis until, you know, it's waiting until the 1920s, 30s, 40s and that kind of a thing. But it spread like this as a fashion, even for people who didn't have syphilis. Well, it spread among the nobility, uh, okay. certainly. And whatever the nobles were doing, for whatever reasons, the commoners or the middle class would then pick up and try to imitate. So you imagine something like cod pieces begins as a way to hide uh, sexual misconduct among the nobility. <laughs> Well, but I mean, once and, you're in the bedroom with your lady, wouldn't she be like, ah? Well, not if she also had it. And Oh, oh, I see. And it's less about that. But if you're, say, Joe Schmo the Merchant, and sure. you've got little Lord Fauntleroy coming in every week, and you see he has a massively packed reddish cod piece, and you say, what's that for? You think he's going to be like, oh, I have a crippling syphilitic infection. No, he's going to be like, oh, this? <laughs> This is the latest fashion from Rome. We're all walking around. So now Joe Schmo, the merchant, creates his own codpiece, and this kind of carries down. And we travel through the lineage where eventually it begins focusing less on protection from inner infections and begins to morph into a little bit more of the jockstrap that we more commonly see today. There's a lot of steps in that story I'm glossing over. I yada, yada, yada. A couple hundred <laughs> years of history there, but but cut me a little bit of slack. It's a yeah. medical, not a fashion show. I'm just dipping my toe into these waters. Sure, <laughs> that's awesome. No, I there's a lot of this in fashion, which is either bubble up or trickle down, right? So in modern raising. Ca- <laughs> You raise me. Oh, gross! No. <laughs> so, but you have a you have a 
a top-down effective fashion where someone like what you're talking about, someone like a king or a queen, Louis XIV with high heels is a good example, or these big puffy wigs or whatever they wore, is that the nobility wore them, so everybody else wanted them. So they kind of came top-down. And then there's these bubble-up ones where you have primarily the working class. Coveralls become more and more fashionable until you wear overalls even if you're not pitching hay. So um, I I think this is so, so cool (laughs) that this weird venereal disease covering you know, kind of groin cover just went down to the masses, but more than likely the masses at the time never really figured out that that's what that's for. I'm guessing they just thought it looked cool. Right. And like I said, you know, we're, we're just touching on highlights. Uh, the jock strap as we know it was invented in the late 1800s. It invented in 1874 by a Chicago sporting goods company, Sharp and Smith, for bicycle jockeys <laughs> working the cobblestone streets of Boston. I mean, to be very fair, you could have said any name there, and I would have giggled and turned it into a penis joke. But Sharp and Smith is pretty good. So it became more influential in the early 20th century when you had the Heidelberg electric belt, which was okay. a low-voltage electric-powered jock strap. That claimed to cure <laughs> kidney disorders, insomnia, and erectile dysfunction. This was, I'm guessing, before the era of like radiation, where you know we we put everything radioactive everywhere, like you know the the radioactive belt buckle or whatever, to increase your vitality. This was this was that era's version of that, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's so awesome. So, you know, that that kind of covers the cod piece that really went from just a simple piece of linen dangling over the naughty bits to a fully wrapped, you know, as I said, David Bowie in Labyrinth. Rest in peace, cod piece. Rest in peace, David Bowie. Now, let's jump on, as long as we're moving into the 1800s, let's talk about... A very surprising one. Uh, are you familiar with Roy G. Biv? Yeah, Roy G. Biv, that's what you used for remembering. Well, well we depending on where you are. So I grew up um, with a partial Indian education, and we went backwards. We went Vib Gayar, but these are the colors of the rainbow, um, except... We've changed it up a little bit because indigo isn't a thing. <laughs> we we've essentially also rainbows yeah. are backwards in India. Um, the the mnemonic is backwards. Oh, because so, you guys are on the other side of the world. Oh, for the love of God! <laughs> That's yeah. weird. I mean, I would have expected that from Australians or Kiwis. The... But... <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to Learn for. something new every day. No, no. Bunch they, of little Indian kids looking at rainbows upside down going, it's Viv Gayar. <laughs> they were, uh, just move on. <laughs> well, as you're looking at your upside down Indian rainbows, and I know we eliminated indigo, but you know what else didn't exist until the 1800s? The color purple. Well, I thought, because there's a whole story about the Phoenicians, isn't there, with 
Oh, the snails. Yeah. The yeah. snails. So yeah. the reason purple was a royal color. Well, let's get into that. If you were an average person around the 18th, early 19th centuries, chances are your wardrobe was 50 shades of gray. Haha. Or, you know, actually, more accurately, 50 shades of beige. <laughs> with maybe a couple pieces in black for variety. Morning, weddings, church services. Sure. Um, and this is outside of just nature's palette. So you could walk outside and see, you know, pretty flowers and butterflies and things, but you couldn't paint with those. Yeah. So fabric dyes had to be made from natural sources like plants and certain insects. And dyes were very, very expensive to make. Hence, you know, cotillions or sweet 16s or quinceañeras with the upper class were very colorful affairs, while country barnyard dances were all drab, gray, brown, beige, until an English chemist changed the world with the color purple. You see, previously, the only way to get purple, and the reason it was associated with royalty, was you had to crush up the shell of this tiny little snail found in the Mediterranean, and its corpse would provide a rich purple staining. But you had to kill a lot of these snails to get even a single bolt of purple cloth. Yeah, yeah. So you couldn't make vats and vats of it. You could just have like, just like you're saying, you could have a cape. Yeah. And, you know, what king doesn't want a purple cape or a stole? Or you could steal his cape, a stolen cape. <laughs> this is, yeah, it's probably I'm sorry, a bad it's, idea. it's late. It's late. <laughs> but in 1856, William Henry Perkins, mm -hmm. age 18, was given a challenge by his professor with a very German name, August Wilhelm von Hoffmann. And his challenge was to synthesize quinine. Oh, so oh. Much, what's quinine? Yeah, quinine or quinine is kind of a parent molecule for, well, we associate it the most with anti-malarials today. So chloroquine, hydroxy, It's yeah. a natural anti-malarial. Importantly, oh. it's a natural substance that's used in the treatment of malaria. So this 18-year-old was given a challenge by his German professor to synthesize an artificial one. So now we're looking at, he was trying to synthesize a natural treatment to treat a disease, and he ended up synthesizing a new color. That's but how did awesome. he get there? Well, in one of his attempts, he did a bunch of chemistry. So here's the fancy buzzwords that none of you care about. He oxidized aniline using potassium dichromate, whose toluidine impurities reacted with the aniline and yielded a black solid suggesting a failed organic synthesis. Nice. That's a lot of big science chemistry words. Essentially, he cleaned, he did an experiment. It left behind this black substance. And when he was cleaning his flask with alcohol, he noted that the solution was purple. And it, oh. this dark liquid byproduct of coal gas production failed to achieve the hoped-for outcome of creating quinine, but succeeded in creating the world's first synthetic dye. It stained his fingers and lab sheets a brilliant purple that he called mauve. What? Why are you saying it like that? Mauve. <laughs> no, mauve. 
As in moi. Uh, 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 uh. No, no, M A U, mauve. No, M A U V, mauve. Yeah. <laughs> Stop saying that. It's it's mauve. <laughs> of course, later, all these aniline dyes were found to have an association with bladder cancer. So. Oh, oh, oh dear. Okay. Um, but. In fact, let, let's do a very brief aside on these dyes. In the late 19th century, derivatives of aniline, such as phenacetin and acetanidolide, ended up emerging as pain-killing drugs, while their cardiac suppressive side effects could be countered with caffeine. So Ooh. while a whole bunch of other people were trying to modify this new series of synthetic dyes, one of them, Paul Ehrlich, uh, was trying to modify a diet African sleeping sickness, and uh -huh. he coined mm -hmm. the term chemotherapy. And uh, this new dye ended up getting a treatment for full circle syphilis, oh, the very yeah. first arsenical <laughs> drug, salversan. Yeah, and we've spoken about this before. I think we did an 80 plagues on syphilis, or it might have been our wonderful valentine's day episodes where we talked about stis uh or in our development of antibiotics talk any one of those will probably have something like this yeah talk the about trouble, syphilis a lot yeah <laughs> the trouble <laughs> the trouble with arsenic is it kills anything living really there's not a lot of things that can stand arsenic that are still alive in terms of having cells that replicate so Yes, you're going to kill off the tryponema, but, you know, in a very narrow therapeutic window, you're going to start poisoning the person or the patient. Make a great children's book, The Trouble with Arsenic. The... <laughs> it could be one of those beautiful little PSAs. Yeah. It's like, Don't mess like with arsenic, you, kids. If you give a mouse <laughs> a cookie, he'll ask for a glass of milk. If you give a patient arsenic, he'll cure, you'll cure his syphilis and he'll die in terrible agony. <laughs> there you go it's you know you, the trading the the curse of the cure for the the not having the disease anymore i suppose we also talked about syphilis in our pirate medicine episode oh we did yes 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 a lot of syphilis on this podcast <laughs> well to be very very fair it is an absolutely ancient disease uh, which has touched every single corner of this planet. Let, let's touch on one more dye. I mean, and then we'll circle back to purple. In 1932, Bayer, that's right, the Bayer makers of aspirin, mm -hmm. was seeking medical applications of its own colored dyes. Having seen the success of Paul Ehrlich in creating the first chemotherapy, chemotherapeutic treatment of syphilis, and mm -hmm. even of William Perkins in creating a new purple dye, Bayer was trying a red azo dye for medical testing and okay. created the first antibacterial drug in 1935, Prontosil, and at the Pasteur Institute, that was found to be a prodrug, which, Santosh, why don't you tell us what prodrugs are? really simply they're professional drugs no i'm kidding <laughs> sorry 
these are <laughs> the amateur league um, yeah yeah the <laughs> pro drugs are a form of the medication that is biologically active once it starts to work exactly how you want it to work so there for a, a, a given pro drug will have to be processed somehow before it is turned into the active molecule that will treat your given disease. So usually, you know, you take a pro drug, you eat it, it gets into your bloodstream and then an enzyme uh, in your body, a protein will actually cleave it to turn it into the bioactive drug and then it'll attack its target and you'll get better. Yeah, so this pro drug, Prontosil, was studied and found to be uh, turned into sulfanilamide, which is a antibacterial that we still use in some compounds today. All right. Nice. We started by looking for a new way to synthesize drugs and created a brand new dye that opened up a color to the masses and allowed them to have slightly more colorful clothing. And then it went back the other direction. People started looking at all the different fashion dyes used in textiles and finding surprising medical applications for them for antibacterial, antifungal, and even as chemotherapeutic agents. I thought that was a nice way for us to come full circle. We started with a young scientist trying to create a new synthetic medicine that rapidly changed the fashion world. In fact, as of 1865, he set off this German company BASF that began filling women's magazines with colorful wardrobe options as a result of this discovery. And then we have within, you know, less than a hundred years, people are investigating all the dyes used in fashion for medical applications and finding several. Oh, nice. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. I, this is the same kind of thing where, you know, I guess penicillin, the discovery that there were bacteria that make antimicrobial compounds kind of set off a cascade of looking for antimicrobial compounds in other bacteria. This was the same kind of thing. It's like, oh, well, if one dye works, what about these other dyes? So with that, let's move into... I think our last fashion topic for today, and we'll stick with the, not the ancient world, but we'll stick with the pre-modern era. Okay. And the modern. And right. let's talk about Victorian era. <laughs> Your absolute favorite. Yeah. But I've got to say, the more and more I see about Victorian era, I definitely understand what the appeal is. It is, and, and don't get me wrong, it may very, very well be that we have people who look back at our era and be like, dude, those guys were weird. <laughs> but right now, the straight weirdness that's coming out of the Victorian era from us looking back at it is just a goldmine. So when you think of the standard era Victorian, Santosh, what do they look like? How are they dressed? What's your mental image? Sure. We are talking about with the guys, 
that are very kind of dapper, right? So they, uh, in England, as a, for instance, you have a tall, maybe a top hat coming down and then, you know, narrow face, chisel jaw kind of thing. Uh, glasses or maybe a monocle, depending on how old you are. Uh, you can have um, a good amount of facial hair, you know, like a full beard or none at all. And then you come down, you have not a cravat anymore because that was Louis the Fourteenth. So you have a, you know, some sort of a neckerchief kind of a thing, a, a white billowy shirt underneath, and then a nice, you know, kind of slimming overcoat. Uh, britches, you could give britches uh, for your pants with a, you know, nice belt. Uh, I think, Josh, I think the men were still wearing tights to this time. Shoes with maybe a heel, uh, you know, and then the women, I, I always think of with the dresses with the giant poofy skirts, and poofy skirts like that. In addition to all of those, you would have people with very pale skin, delicate and transparent, fine, silky hair. Okay. Uh, dilated eyes, probably from <laughs> Belladonna, sure, absolutely. Rosy cheeks and red lips. Mm-hmm. And all of these were common not only in Victorian era people, but also in tuberculosis patients, you know. <laughs> rosy cheeks, red lips. Frequent low-grade fevers, um, pale skin, anemia. You have that consumptive chic where people would show off their, you know, very waifish corsets, would show off these very low waifish waists, and you'd have these huge skirts to emphasize the narrow middle. Mm-hmm. Um, women would use makeup to lighten their skin, redden their lips, and color their cheeks pink. Mm-hmm. pretty much a ton of people had tuberculosis and they're like, well, if you can't beat it, join it. So fashion began to emulate tuberculosis. So Victorians were fanatics for pallid skin. You were out of the sun and also <laughs> freckle removers were marketed, uh, which is a problem because some of these products included mercury, like Dr. Berry's freckle ointment made in Chicago. Okay. One of the people apparently... <laughs> Amelia Earhart was known to detest her freckles. This was news to me. Okay. Uh, when a pot of the poisonous cream was found on a Pacific island, a lot of people believe like that was the site of where she went down. But I digress. So let's talk about how <laughs> tuberculosis gave us the miniskirt. Wait. Uh, yeah. Okay. Let's do that. What? Oh, were you were you unaware that short skirts and TB were linked? I was. I thought pretty much everything that we saw in Victorian era was big poofy skirts. I don't remember any short short skirts in Victorian era. I thought that was a bit later. Yeah, it wasn't in the Victorian era, but we mm-hmm. have the Victorian era to thank for it. Oh, okay. You see, Uh see, and we'll talk in a future episode about the problems with corsets, uh, both then and now. But preventing widespread tuberculosis became one of the earlier large-scale American and European public health campaigns because it, even you know, now as then, was a huge public health problem with 
easy to easy to contract and spread in populated areas. So if you weren't careful, you could get a pandemic of tuberculosis. Okay. Now, many oh. many of these public health campaigns focused primarily and in some cases exclusively on women's fashions. So the streets of Victorian London that people were walking around in filled with filth and slop and droppings and just generally not a lot of sanitation. That's why we had the ghost maps uh, in our epidemiology episode with Jon Snow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh huh. So doctors began to speak out against long trailing skirts as culprits of disease. And they said these skirts were responsible for sweeping up germs on the street and bringing disease into the home. Oh, oh, okay. So they, they weren't entirely wrong. There are diseases, of course, which are on surfaces and you don't want to drag them around. It's one of the reasons why I don't wear a tie. I thought you were going to say why you don't wear a skirt and really no. <laughs> lost. So, so, no. so nicely. So, <laughs> sorry. So yeah, I, I, as a physician, I don't wear a tie, especially as a pediatrician, because we don't wash our ties and they routinely kind of, if you don't wear a tie clip or something like that, they're going to drag along where you don't want them to be touched, you know, and, and or, then just or, carry disease from place to place. Or counterpoint, wear a bow tie. Ooh, that would be dapper. I wish I have to learn how to tie one and then I'm going to do it. Oh, I'll teach you. It's not that hard. Oh, cool. Okay. But yeah, so doctors began to speak out against these long trailing skirts as sweeping up germs on the street and bringing disease into the home. Well, in an effort to avoid possibly contracting this disease that they had been trying so hard to look like, women's hemlines began to raise. Okay, all right. So I, I'm, I'm guessing we're still to the point where we're, you know, the, the showing the ankle is not a good thing. Well, first off, get out of your, you know, prudery ideas of the Victorians. They were having plenty. Okay. Uh, good low down times. But sure. once these hemlines rose a few inches at the beginning of the 1900s, all of a sudden, shoe style became a very important part of a woman's overall look. Oh, sure, because you could raise the hem off the ground by just putting on a heel. Well, now you could see shoes. Uh, oh. So whether oh. had to wear heels to keep your skirts off the ground, or you raised your skirts to the point that they were nowhere near the ground, and all of a sudden people are looking at your shoes. Gotcha. Um, so we have, you know, indirectly shoes, you know, tuberculosis to thank for high heels, although they certainly existed before then. However, sure. once skirts started raising, uh, first for health reasons, and then again, fashion takes its own pro. We don't have a direct line to the mini skirt, but had it not been for those initial doctors saying, hey, get those skirts out of the mud, we never would have ended up with booty shorts and, uh, <laughs> I, and I, all those delightful things. So <laughs> tuberculosis and thanks, doctors. <laughs> I get it. So this was kind of, it was the genesis of raising the hemline. It, it isn't the era where we got super high hemlines, 
but this was the time when they were starting to raise. Yeah, so the initial reason to start raising skirts was not for fashion, it was for health, and then they took that and ran with it. Not dissimilar to what we might end up seeing in the modern day with all the masks. You know, it's not something that we here in the West Coast really made a habit of ever, although it certainly has been a fashion feature in the Eastern world for a number of years. We might start to see, you know, how do you coordinate masks with your outfit, uh, seeing fashion arise from a health concern. Uh, corsets too came under attack as they thought to make as they were thought to make tuberculosis worse by limiting movement of the lungs and circulation of the blood. So people came up with health corsets made with elastic fabric that could alleviate pressure on the ribs while still accentuating the narrow waist. You know what <laughs> Victor early a health elastic corsets were? That was the earliest Lululemon yoga pants <laughs> waist. <laughs> I I'm glad that you know corsets. And I I actually got really really upset because when we were young, Josh and I, there wasn't a thing like Spanx or whatever the hell, like the body shapers. It wasn't. That's amazing. right. We're so old. We predate yoga pants. We do. <laughs> well, we predate the the Spanx for sure, but it the. They were right to distrust the corset, but that was because it was crushing people, specifically women, and they should have stayed away from it. They changed out of it for the wrong reason. They thought it had some sort of adverse effect directly on tuberculosis, which you know now we know is not true. But I really wish this dumb thing had just stayed away, and it never did. Unfortunately, there's still this dumb thing that you have to shape the body like this. So and let's hope that I, I don't want to say like another illness comes around, but let's, let's hope we have another reason to banish these damn body shapers. And we'll talk next time about what the corsets actually did to somebody's physiology. Like there were permanent physiological changes. Right. Of this body shaping uh, in ways that modern corsets simply don't really do, although there are still people who like to wear corsets even outside of burlesque shows. Right. And, you know, uh, we're, we're picking on the Victorians right now, but in every corner of the world, there was some form of this weird binding of the body, which would hurt some part of the body for no good reason. So... We, I don't like any of it, but for sure we'll rather, we'll get around and talk about the corsets. At, I prefer to view health corsets as the precursor to yoga pants. All right, uh, and tuberculosis as mm -hmm. the reason to thank for mini skirts. <laughs> and I'll give you like one it. other thing that tuberculosis gave us. Okay, <laughs> and is, well, I I don't want to. Thank tuberculosis for too much stuff, but okay. Oh, come on, Santosh. It's the disease that keeps on giving. <laughs> so, All right. so, of course, while the Victorian ideal of looking like you're, you know, consumptive and infected hasn't really survived to the current century, tuberculosis has clearly had lingering effects on fashion and beauty trends. Sure. So it influenced kind of a shoe design. It influenced 
hemlines, it influenced corsets and elastic clothing, and also around this time, doctors began to prescribe sunbathing as a cure for TB. They're like, oh, TB oh. makes you get out into the sun. So the modern phenomenon of just tanning to give <laughs> appearance of health yeah. also dates back to the Victorian era. Is it any Santosh that I find this period so fascinating? <laughs> into it, kicking and screaming. <laughs> There's a lot of cool stuff that <laughs> kind of comes around full circle, and I I definitely see the fascination that you have with it. Uh, I don't love where we kind of ended up there at the very, very end, because of course now we discourage tanning quite a bit because we don't want people to get skin cancer from excess sunning. <laughs> we want to try and limit their, their sun exposure if we can. <laughs> so Let's yeah. step just at the beginning of the Victorian era around 1837, we had people wearing parasols and large hats and corsets and putting on bleaching creams and freckle removers made from arsenic. All these attempts to look thin, wasting away, pale, weak, anemic, and with just a few... Well, I assume a few short, angry speeches by doctors, but was probably a concentrated public health effort over a number of years, shifted to higher skirts, the creation of a fashion shoe industry, the rise of tanning, and elastic-era clothing. That's a pretty huge shift, all driven by public health. I I absolutely love it. I always knew how much of fashion came from utility. Uh, you can go all the way to, well, these particular fashions, you know, you can say the epaulette and the beret, you know, they came from military application and they filtered over to non-military or civilian use because they thought pe people thought it looked cool. But I love, I love how much Medicine and health have also influenced what we wear today. So some think, good, some bad. So I think that's a good place to end this week. We've covered how medicine influenced the fashion world. Next time we're back, we'll talk about how fashion influenced the medical world and the design of the white coat, scrubs, and a few other things that, well, doctors have had to deal with in terms of fashion. And of course, <laughs> beginning of disappearance of ties is one of them, as you already mentioned, Santosh. <laughs> I'm I'm really glad we get to talk about this because there. I think if you go around the world, there are still uh, you know places where oh, you're a doctor, you have to look dapper and sharp and all these kind of a things. But I'm really glad that for the most part in Western medical practices, we don't see the need for you must have a tie kind of thing because, oh my gosh, those things were just spread. No, disease. After like three months of wearing nothing but scrubs and PPE, yeah. I do want to wear my bow ties and get dressed up to go see patients again. I, 
I don't like going to work in pajamas anymore. No, <laughs> there is definitely a limit. There is definitely a limit, which is no es bueno. So I'm I'm with you. I'm lucky enough that I still get to dress up for work um you know staying out of scrubs but you're absolutely right when the work gets really really busy and you just have to throw that on and get in after a while you're right you okay i want to look human for just a little bit i just want to go into a patient room with a bow tie and have them assume i'm too nerdy to be any threat (laughs) yeah sure i like it look at this guy here to teach me stuff (laughs) nerd yeah all right so that's it for this week if any of you out there in internet land have other fashion medical tips that you want to point us to or have me talk more about please leave them on our facebook twitter instagram or any social media platform where we exist uh this you can find links to do that and support us spiritually emotionally or financially in the show notes along with links to all the sources used in researching this show which is produced by me with a lot of help from dr santosh and friends our theme music is composed by rachel leisure and until next time now that we're finally starting to open things up (laughs) wash your hands wear a mask and i finally get to say it again happy travels you guys bye everybody deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.